All right. Uh, looks like there are some technical difficulties there, some miscommunication, but um, it's okay. What we're, the text we're going through is Acts chapter 20, verse 17 to 38. So if you want to open up your Bible or your Bible app, um, you can follow uh, along with me there. And what we're doing right now, and, or what we've been doing thus far, is really we've been looking at the book of Acts as a church. Uh, and Acts gives us the history of the earliest Christianity. So studying Acts is our way of understanding authentic Christianity. If there's any uh, right to claim to what is authentic Christianity, it would be the Christianity you see in the book of Acts. And so in our passage today, as Addie read in Acts chapter 20, Paul, right, has ministered for three years in Ephesus, and he is now taking leave to go to Jerusalem. But before Paul does that, he assembles the elders of uh, the Ephesian church to say farewell to them. And this is the famous farewell speech of Paul to the Ephesian elders. And usually when this passage is taught, it's taught to give us job descriptions of ministers or elders or leaders in the church. And if you look at every verb that Paul uses, when you look at how Paul lived and what Paul says to do, you do, when you put them all together, you actually have a wonderful job description of a pastor, of an elder, or a spiritual leader. But it would be a mistake to see this as irrelevant simply because uh, you maybe don't envision yourself as being a pastor or elder or spiritual leader in the church. Actually, I think it's very important to understand how to identify spiritual leaders. I think it's very important to know what your spiritual leaders expect of themselves and why they are doing what they are doing and what they expect of you, those um, of you whom they lead. Because in the book of Acts, actually in this chapter, in this passage, this is the only place where you have this sustained address given specifically to Christians about how they should act as a church. So there's really a lot uh, for here, uh, for everyone to learn. And so when we look at this passage today, what I want us to think about is what is Paul telling us about the kind of church risen should be? That's what I want us to think about. What do we have to learn from Paul here as he says his last words to the Ephesian elders? What kind of church he wants these elders to lead this church in Ephesus? What he wants them to be? What kind of gospel ministry should they be doing? And if we do that, we're going to learn three things here. Being, those three things being truth, grace, and friendship. So let's look at the first thing, truth. Uh, in verse 20, Paul says, You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God in repentance of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in these two verses, notice with me that Paul is communicating three couplets. First, Paul is saying, I declared and taught. And then he says, without shrinking, and that which is profitable. And then third, he says, publicly, and then from house to house. Those are sort of the three couplets we're going to take a look at here. Right? First of all, Paul says, I preached, I declared, and I taught. Now, this is sort of the essence of what the church is to do. Right? The church is to convey a body of content. They are to communicate 
what is true. In Ephesians 3, Paul says this. He says, this grace, this gift was given to me to preach so that through the church, through you all, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. In verse 30 of our passage, Paul says, even from among your own selves will, will arise men to distort the truth, to draw you away. So Paul's job, first and foremost, is to proclaim, to preach, to teach, to guard and protect what is true. What is true. That's what the church is here to do. Why is that so important? Well, why is any truth important? Well, think about it with me. If you want someone to know you, they can't just believe anything they want, right? Have you ever had someone uh, maybe come up to you and they assume things about you and they think maybe you're an engineer, but you're not. And they're like, oh yeah, how's your engineering job? You know, and uh, are you okay with that? You know, if you look at me, you can fairly assume that I'm either ethnically uh, Chinese, Japanese, or Korean, right? You have a 33% chance of getting it right. Now, some want to assume that I'm one of the three. Um, and uh, re very regularly, you get it wrong, right? Because from what I've heard, I can kind of flex in all three categories, <laughs> depending on what my hair looks like, what food I'm eating. I don't get offended. It's fine, right? Uh, but I do have to correct them. <laughs> right? uh, if they get it wrong, I can't let them think that, that I am that ethnicity if I'm not, right? I would not want that. They would not want that. I would not be known and they would feel deceived. Like, ah, I thought you were Chinese this entire time. Why didn't you correct me? It's, ah, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. No, it is a big deal, right? It matters. These things matter. The truth matters. If you want to get to know somebody, you have to know the truth about them. It's the same thing with God. If you want to get to know God, you just can't believe anything about him. If you want to know yourself, you need to know the truth about yourself. Right? One culture and society may say you are just flesh and bones. That's it. You're just a physical being. That's all you are. But the Bible says, no, you are more complex. You are body and soul. There is this spiritual dynamic to you, right? You just don't eat, sleep, drink. You feel, you think, you dream. You have visions and goals and aspirations. You have hopes. One culture and society may say you are only the product of your evolutionary biology and genes as well as your culture and environment. But the Bible says, no, you are more complex. On top of those things, you are also made in the image of God. In other words, they can't both be right, you know? One of those accounts of you is true, and one of those accounts of you is false. And depending on what you believe and, and how you pursue your life, unless you know the truth about you, you're never going to know who you are. You're going to be confused. And you're never going to live how you are truly meant to live. Truth matters. The wrong information will lead to disastrous outcomes. And unless you know the truth about God, you're never going to know who God is. Now in verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And in verse 28, Paul says to the elders, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his, with his own blood. Now, this part is very important because as the church, how do you know what is true? Right? How do you know what is true? You know, 
Um, if you're studying to be a doctor, how do you know what is true? You have to learn from other doctors, from other medical professionals, people who've been approved by other medical professionals, right? If you want to become a lawyer, right? You don't just self-accredit yourself. The board tests you, and when you pass, they give you sort of the right hand of fellowship, right? You represent all of them. And so what Paul is saying is, okay, as the church, how are you going to know what is true, right? In the world, there's all this noise. The world uh, makes so many claims. How are you going to know that in your church community, you are really following the truth? How do you know? In the Bible, according to the Bible, Paul says here, some people are appointed as elders and overseers. These are really synonyms. Um, now, what are they to do? Well, the Greek word, it says here, as overseers, to care. In verse 28, that word literally is translated as shepherd. They are to shepherd, right? Paul references the church as a flock of sheep, and the, sh- the shepherds, the elders, the overseers, they, they, they pastor them, they lead them, they protect them, they take care of them. What does that mean? Well, first it means that shepherds have authority, right? The shepherds do not turn to the flock. If you, if you know about farming, you know, they don't turn to the flock and say, what would you like to eat today, sheep? No, right? They don't say that, right? Let's have a vote, sheep. <laughs> no, uh, the shepherd have real authority. There, there's real le- leadership there. It's not just a, a title. It's not just, oh, someone's got to make decisions. No, there's, there's real God-ordained, God-inspired, biblically-guided authority. Where does that authority come from? In, in the book of Titus, uh, Paul tells Titus to appoint every elders or appoint elders in every town. So I sort of shared with this in one sense, spiritually, spiritual authority of elders and overseers that comes from already existing authority, right? I can't just wake up one day and say, hey, I dumb myself as, as pastor, as preacher, as a spiritual authority, right? Even myself in our denomination, I've I had to go through all these examinations, all these tests, and all these interviews, and all these reference checks, and, and, and I was extended the right hand of fellowship. So elders in the church are appointed by other qualified and godly elders. That's how it works. But in verse 28, Paul says, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of the flock. In other words, there is this natural vetting process But God uses that to do what? A supernatural vetting process. Paul reminds the elders that it is really God who has placed them in their positions of authority. This is profound. Because, you know, you and I, we live in probably the most individualistic society in the history of the world. Nobody wants anyone to tell them how to live. And yet the Bible says, you need to find a shepherd. You cannot be self-accredited. You cannot lead yourself. So elders and pastors are here to say, basically, you know, it is our understanding on the basis of our study, the basis of our experience, everything we know, this is the truth. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. 
And so what that means, very practically, friends, is that you just can't come in and out of the church without a shepherd knowing who you are as a part of the flock, as a part of the sheep. So you need to, you know, join a church and become a member. You need to take membership vows so that you can really be under their leadership. And if, you, if we were to even scale this, right, because a shepherd can't do everything, you know, we have ministry leaders at our church. We have CG leaders at our church. That is a delegation of real authority, of real authority. And that's why we also have every leader kind of go through leadership training because they have real authority. They can spiritually abuse a person, right? Because they have that authority. I'm not there. I'm not present in those community groups. Now, they don't have the same level of authority as an elder or pastor, but they still have a real authority in their respective ministries where they serve and lead. And so that's the first thing, friends, that the church believes. And that is really the, Bible, the Bible's account of what is true. We're about the truth. And that truth is disseminated, right, by spiritual authority. Truth that includes who you are, who God is, what the church is supposed to do, what the church is supposed to be. You can't sidestep the truth. You, can't, you can never say that doesn't really matter. But the second pair Paul uses here, he says, I declare the truth without shrinking. And then he says, and with being profitable. Without shrinking means without fear. Fear is a real impulse, isn't it? Sometimes we don't speak the truth because we are afraid of what people will think. Sometimes we don't act out the truth because we are afraid of how people will respond. And so Paul knows this. And so he says, you've got to do this without fear. You've got to have courage to be a Christian. You can't be everyone's friend and honor truth, you know? Think about it. In the court of justice, you think the judge is trying to be everyone's friend? No. The judge is trying to figure out what is the truth. I'm not here to be the jury's friend, the lawyer's friend, the, 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 the audience's friend. I'm here to understand what is true. Now, what this means is that biblical truth will offend someone, right? Biblical truth will always offend um, everyone, actually, in some way. Now, stick with me here. Right? What I mean by that is there is no culture, no city, no person uh, where you can bring biblical truth to that it won't offend them or upset them in some way. But it has to be this way. It has to be this way. Let me explain. Right? Because maybe, maybe you think the reason why I have extremely difficult time believing the Bible is because there are some parts of it that I just find offensive. But let me tell you this. I'm here to tell you that actually that right there is a mark of the Bible being true. How so? Well, if the Bible has come from God, it is not the product of one culture over here or the product of that culture over there. Because if the Bible was a product of a particular culture, then everybody in this culture would agree with it and then everyone in that culture would disagree with it. But if it comes from God, then it makes sense that it's going to offend both cultures in different ways, right? Let me explain this. In an Eastern culture, it is a much more relational, much more communal culture. Family and friends are very important. Relationship is everything. So leaving your parents and your old family 
and cleaving to your spouse to make a new family, it's, it's offensive. Suicidal, borderline suicidal. But in Western culture, it is more of an independent and individualistic culture. So self-happiness, self-expression, self-fulfillment, and, and, and those things are very important. To sacrifice your, your self-dreams for the sake of anyone else is offensive. How can you dare ask me to sacrifice my individual dreams? So you see, because the Bible is a product of God and not a product of an Eastern culture or Western culture, it's going to offend both cultures in different ways. And so I say that to also say, if, 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 if we think I can't believe the Bible because it offends me in this way, that's actually a very self-subjective, um, self-cultural centric way of thinking, Right? It's in essence, you're saying my culture's problems with the Bible are more important than that culture's problems with the Bible. But if the Bible is from God, and it is, then it is going to offend everyone in some way. It's going to offend someone everywhere and everyone somewhere. So Paul does not shrink back. He does not hold back. He lifts the Bible up even when he knows it's going to offend the Romans and the Greeks in one way and the Jews in another. That's why they both got together and killed Jesus. They were offended in different ways, not in the same ways. But we cannot change the Bible according to whichever culture we are communicating the truth to, right? It's going to confuse people. Uh, I can't go to some group, one culture, and say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, the Bible talks about this and not that, and then go to the other group and say, oh, yeah, the Bible talks about this. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing any justice to God. I'm not really bringing this culture or that culture to know God. Like Paul, you and I, we cannot shrink back. But at the same time, Paul says, I love Paul. He's just so, he's so wise. He says, when we convey truth without shrinking, he says, you have to do this profitably, profitably right? What is a profit, right? You got to make a profit, right? If you, if you induce some endeavor, right, you want to make a profit. If it's a financial business, you want to make a financial profit. Well, Paul's saying, look, when you do this, you've got to make a spiritual profit, right? Your, you know, your Christians have to be spiritually growing. People have to be wanting to come to know Jesus and be baptized. That's how you know you're doing it correctly. Because I think for you and me, sometimes it's very easy not to hold back right? We, we're fine with being, without shrinking, right? Just, just blast it. Take the flag. But maybe we're not being very profitable. There's no spiritual profit. So what is Paul saying when he's saying that I, I was declaring the truth, but I was also doing it profitably? Well, what he's saying is our understanding of truth is never something we just believe for our, our own sake, you know, we don't just say, oh, I have the truth. Now I'm better than that person. I'm more right than that person. I know the truth. I'm right, they're wrong. That's the goal. No, no, truth for truth's sake is not the goal. Truth is always a means to an end. Right, and, and Titus, Paul says to Titus, make sure you teach sound doctrine. And the Greek word for sound here is healthy. 
So Paul's saying you need to teach healthy doctrine. Doctrine, you don't need to teach what is true. He's saying, oh no, the truth is going to make you healthy. Same thing if you're a doctor, right? I go to a doctor to tell me the truth so that my body can be healthy. That, that's what I expect. And so the, the, the truth is, for your, is food for your heart and your soul and your character and your family and your relationships and your marriage for your children. You don't shy away from all that because that is eventually going to be good and healthy for you. In Colossians, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul's not just saying, oh, just, you know, listen to the truth on Sunday. No, he's saying, let it dwell in your heart richly. Don't just eat veggies once a month. (laughs) He's saying, let the veggies dwell in your body richly, right? Because all of your health in these areas, they are dependent upon the truth, And if you're spiritually struggling with anger or bitterness or resentment or pride, it's because you are not dwelling in the truth of God's word richly. You see, if if, if you are here and you're lacking spiritual joy, spiritual peace, spiritual grace and forgiveness for your spouse or your parents or your kids, whatever it is, it would be very spiritually unhealthy for you to just say, well, I don't don't care. I'm just going to do what I think I should do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Because God says, no, you have to let the truth dwell in you richly first. You have to figure it out how to get this truth and get to the root, right? Because a tree is only as healthy as the roots. When I talk to someone when it's in a, maybe a membership meeting or community groups, um, actually one particular conversation I remember um, this, this person was sharing with me how uh, she had turned a corner. And I said, oh, but what are you talking about? And she said, you know, um, I really struggle with self-righteousness and, and judging others. And she said, um, I used to be such a judgmental person, but I, I, I stopped being so judgmental. You know, she said, I, I still judge others. <laughs> but she says, but I'm better, I'm better. And her husband's like, she is, she is. <laughs> and I said, what happened? What happened? And she told me, well, over time, just the truth of God's word from, from you, know, uh, you know, whenever I would get to the gospel or during communion or in community groups, because, you know, our community group leaders say, hey, we are going to study the word, right? That's what we're going to do. She said, over time, this just challenged, it got deep into her roots and, and it, it challenged her perspective on others and those whom she felt offended by, uh, particularly her husband, whom she stood over and judged constantly, and she said, I realized through all of this, as the, as the word of Christ was dwelling in me richly, she said, I realized that when I judge, I'm saying, God, I'm better than others. I'm better than my husband. I'm not a sinner like him or others. In that sense, what she says, I don't need your grace. I don't need it. He needs forgiveness. Me, no. <laughs> I can withstand your judgment, God. And therefore, I can judge like you. And she was like, that's why I judge, right? I'm like, dang. Right? She says, I believe there is a, that, that, that I am truly morally better than others. But she says, whenever, you know, that we get to the gospel and the sermon or communion where we, where we, you know, take time to confess our sins, she's like, eventually, like the Holy Spirit just dropped, dropped on her. And she was confronted with the truth, the truth. This is why truth is so important, that she is not better than others, that she and, and she is an unjust judge. But God is not an unjust judge. 
He's the true judge, but what did he do? He showed her grace. That is years of counseling right there, isn't it? Years of changing counselors too, probably, right? <laughs> but what had spiritually happened? The, world, the word dwelt in her richly and it became profitable, profitable. It was truth that came in and didn't, didn't split them up. It brought them together. That's how truth is meant to be used, profitably. How does this happen? I want to go to the last pair. Uh, we talk about how Paul says, I taught, uh, I taught um, without shrinking back, profitably, and he says publicly and house to house. This is very important, right? Paul not only brought truth to bear on, on Sundays like this, he brought truth to bear inside people's homes. He was not only in the synagogue, not only in the Areopagus, not only the Hall of Tyrannus, as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, Paul is preaching in very public places, but he was also in relationships. And so what that means, if you want the kind of truth that creates this spiritual health in your life, it's not enough to just come here on Sunday. It's not enough, right? Sometimes the sermons are good, sometimes they're, eh, they're okay, right? <laughs> right? But even if they were great all the time and, and you walk away convicted and like, oh my goodness, that was the best sermon I ever heard or with tears, that's just public. That's just, that's just half the work. Preaching is not enough. It's a one-way communication where the truth really gets applied, where it really gets into your life, where it really gets into your heart, just like the example I shared, it's through relationships. She would have never shared that with me if she did not trust me if she did not know me, if I did not share with her, if she didn't know that I struggled with the same things, if we didn't laugh together, if we didn't weep together, if we didn't eat meals together, it gets in through all the things. That's why we have membership classes and baptism classes and leadership training and even our ministry teams meet once a month. We have community groups. It gets in through getting together. That's how it works. What's the best, what's the best experience? On the job experience, right? Let me give you a book. I give you a heads up, I guess. Gets in through talking and praying together, being together. That's how it's going to create health in you. You know, sometimes when you work out at a gym, you need a partner. Why do you think they have these groups and these communities working out together? Because you need accountability. You need encouragement. You need to know each other. So it's not just enough to come here. You do need to do it. But it's not enough. It's just one part of being part of a church. The other part is you need to be deeply involved in community. You need to know others and they need to know you. And it needs to be consistent, right? If it's not consistent, that's, that's just a drop in, right? That is wanting to prioritize community, but also wanting to prioritize your convenience, right? Imagine, imagine if you, someone said, uh, some of the singles here, what if they said, someone said, I'm committed to dating you until something else comes along right? That's not real. That, that is fake. <laughs> Don't fall for that. That is wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Um, if you know the story of uh, Ulysses in the Odyssey, right? Um, he ties himself to the mast when he is going to go out of his mind when he hears the sirens. And he tells his sailors, you need to tie me to the mast. And no matter what I say, you just need to keep rowing. Just keep rowing. If you know your own heart, you know that 
you're, there are going to be times where you are going to need people to hold you accountable, you know? If you know your own heart. There are going to be times where you're not thinking straight. And for people to hold you accountable, to care about you, you need to belong to a community. So on the one hand, uh, the essence of what the church is here to do is to convey a body of truth. And, and, but on the other hand, the church has to be tender. A shepherd just doesn't have authority. A shepherd has to be very tender with his sheep. There has to be grace. This is just as important. And so uh, when you take a look at uh, verse 18 to 19, Paul says this. He doesn't just say, yo, I, I taught, I preached, I was bold, I was courageous. Man, I was an overseer. He says this in verse 18. He says, you yourself know how I lived among you. The whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What did Paul do? Did he just teach? And they said, all right, I'm out of here. Right? I'll be back. Make sure you guys do things correctly. <laughs> no, he said, I lived among you. In the Gospel of John, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, you just can't have truth to be healthy. You, you need also love, love. You know, you all know I just had a kid. I feel like I, I said I just had a kid, but it's been a year. So time, time to me is relative. Uh, I only shave and get a haircut when people say, are you okay? Oh, snap. Um, initially, all I would do with Luke is like, I just tell him no. No, stop it. What are you doing? Blah, blah. And then eventually he just, he just got scared of me. You know, when I came in the middle of the night to change his diaper, he was like, who is this guy? Right? Oh, no, the judge is here. <laughs> and so I realized, man, I, I, I can't just tell him that kind of truth and exhibit my authority. I had to play with him. I had to eat with him. I had to laugh with him. You know, I had to live among him with humility. And this is why, friends, as a church, you just can't be about the truth. You have to be among people, among people who are different from you, among people who disagree with you. You can't just be among yourself. First of all, that's not truth. But then you'll also never learn how to be truly loving. It's easy to love someone who's like you. That's not love. That's not love. That's, that's convenience. That's selfish convenience. But you need to, what Paul is saying here is, I came to live with you and eat with you and work with you and play with you and to be just with you completely. I, I'm not like, every part of my life is, is open to you. I'm not distant. I'm not detached. I didn't just come with truth. I came to show you my entire personality, my silliness, my messiness, my vulnerability, truth and love. And then Paul says in verse 19, he served with all humility. Now, this word humility is really important for us to understand how Christianity changed that brutal, brutal Greco-Roman society. Because the Greek word for humility here is, uh, in that time, it was always a negative word. It always referred to someone who, who lost. He was humbled. He lost. He was defeated. He lost. He was humbled. But in the Bible, this word is always what? A virtue. Humility, actually, uh, if you do your history, is not in the old virtue list of the Greeks and the Romans. It's not a virtue at all. But it is in all the lists 
of the Bible when we look at the virtues of Christianity. Why is humility such a good thing? Well, here's why. Okay, whether you are religious or irreligious, every human heart, we are not looking for humility. We are looking for glory, right? We, want, we are looking for self-pride. And whether you're religious or irreligious, you have a version of salvation, right? Maybe your version of salvation is financial success, right? And if you don't uh, accomplish that, you feel like you're in hell, right? Um, when you do, you feel like you're in heaven. Maybe, maybe one of your um, uh, self-versions of salvation is romance and love. So, you know, when you're, you're pursuing someone and someone's pursuing you or you have a lot of that going on in your life, you feel like you're in heaven. When not, you feel like you're in hell. Maybe it's family and, and the success of the family. So when, when your family is going through difficult times, you feel like you're in hell. When they're doing well, you feel like you're in heaven. In other words, everyone has a religion, right? This standard uh, which you judge yourself and which you judge others by and whether or not how you're doing on that scale, you feel like you are experiencing a version of heaven or hell. Everyone is on that scale. You're on that scale, I'm on that scale. At this end of the scale is heaven, happiness, your form of what salvation is. At, at this end of the scale is hell, failure, unhappiness, your form of that version. But what happens when you fail to meet your standard of salvation? When someone else who doesn't care about your version of self-salvation refuses to meet that? You're going to get down to the unhappiness level, right? And then you judge these folk who are not worshiping your religion. But what happens if you're a Christian? You get off that scale. Why? Because of grace. Let me explain. In verse 24, Paul says, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul constantly talks about Grace. In verse 32, he actually doesn't just call the gospel of Jesus grace. He says, the entire Bible, the word, the entire word of God is grace. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So what, here's what Paul understands. Paul understands that you and I, we are on this scale between our version of salvation and heaven and hell, and we just go back and forth, back and forth. But the gospel comes into our life and here it's what it does. First, it tells you the truth. What does it say? It says, okay, what's your form of self-salvation? This life in this life? It is a blip. A blip. You are a mist that will come and go. Possessions? Temporary. Temporary. Health? Fleeting. Marriage and family? Come on, you're a sinner. Let's be honest. <laughs> really. Without the Holy Spirit? Without the grace of God? So when you turn to Jesus and what he has done on your behalf, that he's died for you, 
that he's lived the life you should have lived, been the spouse that you should be, the parent that you should be, the sibling that you should be, and he died the death that you should have died, what does it do? It puts you on a whole nother scale. It says, you do have salvation now. You do have real heaven now. You do have eternal security, real security now. You do have love now. And it's not subject to you. So you don't whiffle waffle. It's based on the performance of Christ. So whether you have a good week or a bad week, it doesn't matter. God has made a covenant with you. A covenant is a promise. For us, we don't understand that because as Westerners, we don't make promises. We break them all the time. We get out of contracts. We complain. We, we do it. If we're not happy, we get out. But God is saying, no, I'm not like that. I'm not like you. I make covenants. I make promises. I stick to my word. Through faith in Jesus and what he's done for you, I'm going to love you as much now as I will love you a billion years from now. You know, sometimes we think um, when we're having like a great week, we think maybe God loves us more. No, he loves you just as much when you have a great week than when you have a bad week, right? Imagine that kind of, I mean, man, I'm, as a parent, I struggle with that. I understand how hard that is. And so when we understand grace, what does that do? It makes you humble. God's grace for you makes you a person of grace for others. Right? Because we now know we are not saved by our personal morality or by our standard of self-salvation. No, we're saved by admitting that we are sinners and believing in the one who humbled himself and went to the cross for us. And one of the displays of this kind of humility, as we see in our passage, is tears. Tears. Jesus cried. He cried for Lazarus. He cried in the garden. Probably cried many more times. Paul cries in our passage. The elders cry. So what that means, friends, is that you and I, we can cry too. That means, men, you can cry too, right? Big boys can cry. <laughs> Even you. How can you not when you think about the grace and the love of Jesus? And, and here's why it's so important that when you are a community of truth, that you are also a community of grace. Because when you believe you have the truth, it is very easy to become hypocritical. It's very easy to say, I have the truth, they don't, I'm better than them. But that's not true. The real truth is that everyone needs grace, even if you have the truth. Do you think a doctor doesn't need to take care of their own body? No, that would be foolish. If a doctor says, well, I know now how to take care of the body, so I don't have to take care of my own body, that would be utterly foolish. But it's very easy when you have the truth to think that just because you know here that somehow it's being applied in your life, so you can easily become arrogant and proud. So what happens is you have the truth, but you have no love for people. You have no love for people because you have forgotten about Jesus' love for you. You have forgotten how to cry for Jesus. 
but it's only when there is truth and grace, right? This is what people will say when they look at our church. They'll say, on the one hand, risen, they believe they have the truth and they don't compromise the truth. Man, every Sunday, I get the truth. They are sure, they are convicted, they are not shrinking, right? They don't believe in one thing today and another thing tomorrow. At the same time, at this church, there is tremendous grace. When I come in with my doubts and my mistakes, they don't, they don't come down my throat. When I come in and express my differences, they don't take my head off. So they're not uh, moralistic and judgmental, but they're also not relativistic and wishy-washy. That's when you have the kind of church that Paul wants these Ephesian elders to, to build. Truth and grace. And when we have truth and grace, this is what it does. It, it leads, lastly, to friendship. Verse 36 says here, when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They hugged Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. They would not see his face again. That's friendship. They had to tear themselves away because they, 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 they loved each other so much. They're not just associates or church members. It's not just a ritual or someone at my CG. <laughs> no, no. They were friends. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this friendship in, the, in his book, The Four Loves. He says, romantic love looks at each other. He says, friendship love, they're side by side and they're looking at one thing. Maybe it's a team sport. Maybe it's their, their, their team that they like. Right? Maybe it's because they, they're both, they both like to eat. But Christian friendship, when you see two people side by side, what are they doing? We see in our text, they're kneeling before one thing. They're praying to one person. Who is that? Jesus. When, when two people who kneel to Jesus, any two people who kneel to both truth and grace, any two people who have experienced the gospel and been taken off the world's scale, this back and forth scale of self-salvation, when you have these two people looking to something greater than themselves, what you have is true biblical friendship. Where do they learn this kind of friendship? Where did Paul learn this? Where did the disciples learn this kind of friendship? From Jesus, of course. Jesus was truth and grace in the flesh. Everything about him embodied this paradox. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was good. He was righteous. There was nothing wrong in him. And he never said anything wrong. But did that make him proud? Did that make him arrogant? Did that make him self-righteous? No. Jesus was gracious. He was compassionate. He was forgiving. But what did, and what did that accomplish? What did the life and the person and the work of Jesus of truth and grace accomplish? Eternal friends. Jesus built his church. And friends, that is our DNA. As Christians and as our church, truth and grace, that's true friendship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you 
And when we take a look at this text, we see this, this amazing scene. And it is a microcosm of all the churches in the world. It is a microcosm of all the spiritual communities in the world. It is a microcosm of all the spiritual relationships in the world. Because every church, every spiritual community, every spiritual relationship has the same thing that grounds them, the same thing that unites them, and that is the truth and grace of Christ. And so we come before you today and we acknowledge that, man, that so much of the time we swallow um, hook, line, and sinker uh, the culture's version of salvation. And then we find ourselves on this scale of heaven and hell that's based upon our efforts. And then we experience everything that is fleeting and temporary, transient. And we need something stable. We need something certain. We need something truly secure. And then you come into our world and you come into our lives and you say, I, I am that, that thing. I can love you like no one else can love you. I can understand you like no one else can understand you. I can be with you like no one else can be with you. I can give you security like no one else can give you security. I can give you life like no one else can give you life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would just come down into every single person's heart here and you would just convict us by the power of the Holy Spirit of your truth and of your grace for us and that would make us a people and a church of truth and grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.